Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Guys, I got I got bad news. I uh, I forgot the intro spell. <laughs> you see, I used it last week, and I've been really busy, and I haven't really been able to sit. Like, just give give me a second. I think you can cast that. You... I think you can cast that one as a ritual. Oh, thank God! Okay, everybody, hang out for ten minutes. Give me ten minutes. <laughs> oh God. Welcome to the RPGBot.news. I'm Randall James, your forgetful Vancean, and with me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Ash Eli. Hey, guys. Uh, well, let's see. So this is a regular episode, not a, uh, not a news episode, our forgetful Vancean. Welcome to the RPGBot.podcast. I'm Randall James, your forgetful Vancean, and with me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Ash Eli. Hey, guys. All right, what is happening? Well, okay. today... What, what's happening? What's happening? <laughs> well, forgetful Vancian is not alliterative, forgetful Vancian. That's fair. I, I fudged <laughs> it a little bit. <laughs> well, today... I figured, I figured my friends would forgive me. <laughs> we forgive you. We forgive you. Uh, uh, all right, well, today we are going to talk about spellcasting and resource management. So if you've played any number of tabletop RPGs, chances are you've probably encountered someone who can do magic of some kind. If you're playing D&D or Pathfinder, you know, you've got your wizards, you've got your clerics, all those. Um, many fantasy and science fantasy games have similar concepts. Essentially, spellcasters can do things that are far beyond what other people can do, and in any given game, there is some mechanical limitation on those characters to prevent them from just knocking the game over. Today, we're going to talk about those limitations. Awesome. Yeah, we talk all the time about how basically, especially when, when you get to higher tiers, wizards are OP in 5e. Uh, wizards are OP in most systems. Uh, and, and that's exactly the conversation, right? It's the exponential wizard, the linear fighter. Exactly. And that concept has been around for a super long time. Like, uh, even, even in very early editions of D&D, you would have your wizard who started with, like, 1d4 hit points, no modifier. So they were paper thin. If anyone looked at them funny, they would die. But if they survived long enough, they would get so powerful that they could essentially break the world if they decided to. Yeah, basically the idea is uh, I'm going to get a party of martial characters to babysit this wizard until it grows up. <laughs> It's like Baby Groot in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's like, just let's let him get a little bit older because he's going to be super strong as soon as we get him there. I believe uh, Joe Cat on YouTube said it the best. Wizard is the definition of the don't, don't be careful who you call ugly in high school. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, that's pretty I, good. 
Yeah. I've seen some elderly wizards. They don't get better. <laughs> <laughs> but their violence gets very sophisticated, so that's something, I guess. It sure does. So the way that the way that this power scope is limited varies from game to game, but we're going to start on D&D and Pathfinder because that's you know generally what people are most familiar with. So the way magic is limited in D&D and many D&D adjacent games is called Vancean magic, quote unquote. Now this dates back to Jack Vance's Dying Earth series, which was published in the like 70s and 80s, very close to when Dungeons and Dragons first came out. And uh, it, here, I'm just I'm just going to read a sentence from Wikipedia, so bear with me. Magic in the dying earth is performed by memorizing syllables, and the human brain can only accommodate a certain number at once. When a spell is used, the syllables vanish from the caster's mind. So, like, that's, that's a weird concept, because as a, as a human being, you've probably never had a thought for a long time and then just had it fall out of your brain permanently. Actually, no, totally, I... I okay. resemble that statement. <laughs> uh, my favorite comparison is think of like an earworm, a song that gets stuck in your head and it's stuck in your head and it's stuck in your head and just keeps replaying on loop and it keeps going for a while. And eventually it's just gone. Or just it gets like worse. Yeah. Or it gets worse. <laughs> well, sometimes you prepare the spell twice. Yeah. And it was a mistake both times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something I was in- something I found interesting when I was reading to do this episode Apparently, with Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, there were a lot of people who didn't understand the idea of Ancient Magic. They didn't understand the idea that I meant to prepare this spell, use the spell, and then it is unavailable to me until I prepare it again. And when they figured this out, it was like, oh, but that's going to ruin my comic book game. I don't want to do that. Like, that's going to make the game too hard. Well, early editions were a bit harder than later editions, so that that checks out. But imagine a world where your wizard could cast Fireball every turn. Yeah, it would get broken real fast. It is strange that, you know, D&D's magic system came out of a uh, contemporary fantasy novel. Uh, and then they just kept that same system the entire time. Uh, than pulling from all the different uh, varied, uh, all of the different varied magic systems that exist in a lot of literature nowadays. Like you have the Mistborn series, you have um, uh, Earthsea, like all of that sympathetic magic or alchemical based magic and stuff like that. But I guess if it was, if it's not broke, don't fix it, I guess. I think that's definitely it. Like the. The Vancean magic concept creates some necessary things that spellcasters have to do. Like, you have to set aside time to think about your spellcasting every day. You have to recharge on some regular basis. Like, there are, there are strict, clear limitations to what anyone can do in a given day. Um, and that, that very strict, hard magic, quote-unquote, system makes it very easy to implement that in game mechanics. Games with games with uh, fiction with soft magic, like um, you, the Force in Star Wars, is kind of a soft magic system. Um, Avatar: The Last Airbender magic is pretty soft. Like anything, oh gosh, Harry Potter has the softest magic system I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> is it convenient right now? It's gonna work it's gonna exactly. Yeah. So if if the magic system doesn't have like very strict, explicit rules that you see playing out all, all over the place, um, 
then it's a soft magic system, quote unquote, and that makes it very difficult to implement in the game and still have it feel like that setting. Yeah. Now that being said, like let's hop into five E. So we're we're talking about it's it's interesting that there isn't more. One, not all spellcasters use Vancy and Magic, and we'll dive into that a little bit. Two, in five E, it isn't exactly Vancy and Magic anymore. You know, it's nope. almost Vancy. Yeah. So I came up on third edition where it like it was still super close to Vancy and Magic. Like second edition, first edition, it was very, very explicitly everyone uses explicitly fancy and magic like you prepare a spell in a spell slot once you use that spell slot it's gone if you want to cast a spell twice in a day you have to prepare it twice so there's an adage in third edition that came from um i believe it was a youtuber called the dungeon bastard um if you have one spell slot you prepare fireball if you have two spell slots you prepare fireball twice it was good advice then Still kind of applies. So 5th edition, uh, it's it's a little less Vancian. It's a derivation of the Vancian magic. So you still have that concept of preparing spells every day. So you change your arsenal every day, but the spell slots can fuel any of those spells that you've prepared until you run out of spell slots, and then you know, you're, you're out of batteries for the day. Take a nap. So what that means is, let's say I prepared Fireball and I have all my spell slots available, I can situationally look at it and say, okay, I'm going to use my teeny Fireball right now because I'm not worried about, you know, the strength of these enemies. I think I'll probably knock them all down versus you might make the decision in a harder fight, look, I'm going all the way with it. And that was a choice that wasn't available to you in prior editions. Yeah, exactly. If you wanted to cast spells that way you basically had to make those decisions ahead of time and hope that it worked out yeah which i mean honestly i never had to play in that system i never had to that's how i'll phrase it (laughs) it it's a little wild to me well having come from fifth edition and now playing in pathfinder it has its pros and cons um i would say pathfinder one spellcasters can get very very powerful but the problem is, is that uh, Pathfinder has a lot of really cool spells that are really niche and like for really niche circumstances. And because you have to prepare certain spells for each slot, you can't just have prepared spells that you can just freely cast from any slot. Uh, it makes it harder to justify using niche spells, which kind of sucks. Um, but that being said, you don't also in Pathfinder one. You don't upcast spells. You don't have to worry about that. You prepare a spell and it scales based on your caster level. That's it. Nothing else. So it's always technically kind of cast at its highest power. Okay, that that actually is nice, and I don't think I appreciated that earlier. I guess I'll ask the question: How old of an idea is a ritual spell? There were, they I think were... there were rituals in three point five, right? They were an, a variant rule introduced in Unearthed Arcana, and it was kind of a... Was it Unearthed Arcana? It was either Unearthed Arcana or the Epic Level Handbook, which uh, those are the two books that break games. B- basically, it was, okay, we don't want to create a bunch of spells that are wildly outside of what's already published, so here's this system for essentially building custom spells that you have to cast as a ritual. So, like... You could create a spell that permanently turned you into an ancient dragon 
but it would take like a year to cast unless you found a cult of 20th level wizards to help you cast it. So like it was this whole elaborate, confusing and weirdly abusable system. Because you cast the same way you did rituals. If I get 20 friends to do it, I can do it 20 times as fast. It, yeah, actually, it was very <laughs> it was very much the mythical man month of spellcasting. Perfect. Just you work on this part over here. You work on this. How did I get a dragon head and nothing else? I can't I can't hold this thing up. I'm dragging it behind me. Just Yeah. Um, I mean, I, this is interesting. And you talk about the fact, Ash, that like it kind of sucks. You can't have these cool non-combat spells or these situational spells that basically never come up. Um, I'm running a long one shot right now. I told the wizard in our party literally copy every ritual spell appropriate for your level into your spellbook. If there is an opportunity to use it as we're doing this dungeon crawl, I want you to do it. Because my observation for all the 5e that I have played is that if it isn't a damage spell, it practically never gets picked up because it's never used. Mm-hmm. And uh, as much as that is a problem in 5th edition, it's kind of exacerbated. Well, here's the thing about it. It's kind of a it's it's kind of um uh pros and cons sort of thing. So on the one hand, because you have to prepare uh certain spells for a certain day, you also have more spells that you are able to kind of learn and Pathfinder. Um and so on days that I know I'm probably not gonna get into combat, I can prepare the more social non-combat spells. So the, I see more use of that stuff in Pathfinder than I would in, say, 5th edition. Because 5th edition, you get kind of limited spells, unless you're a wizard. Um, uh, or a cleric and stuff. Who, but they don't, they don't really have a lot that they can do out of combat with spells. Like, most of the spells have some sort of combat focus, I've noticed, in 5th edition. Because, again, like Pathfinder, there's a huge variety of spells. And some of them are really cool. So I do appreciate that. Oh, a little addendum. You know how everybody hates uh, GMs hate counterspell in fifth edition. <laughs> uh, it's not like that in Pathfinder. Oh, it's so in much worse. Pathfinder, you have to prepare the spell that you want to counter. So uh, first, you have you have to identify <laughs> what spell is being cast with the check, and you can only with it with a spellcrafting check. And then, if you have that spell prepared, then you can counter it. But if you don't have that spell prepared, you cannot counter it. It, Why do you always prepare Petrify? You ever been Petrified? It sucks. (laughs) Yeah. It gets even worse. You also have to prepare the action to counterspell. Oh, oh, Uh okay. I understand now. It's useless. That's what you're saying. 100%. And again, it continues to get worse. You have to make an opposed caster level check. So Mm -hmm. you can prepare the right spell time it exactly right to prepare for it, and then mess up the caster level check and have all of that effort, including the spell slot used to attempt the counterspell, all of that completely wasted. I have never once seen a spell successfully countered in 3X. Never once. Yeah, and so there's a there's kind of a saying where it's like, DMs, DMs love counterspell mechanics in Pathfinder. <laughs> Players love counterspell mechanics in 5th edition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> DMs who come from Pathfinder to 5th edition hate Counterspell because it's just, it's such a powerful spell. Like, it really is one of the most powerful changes that they made to 5th edition. That is, yeah. that Having never experienced that, that feels pretty silly. I will say, even in 5e, I feel like I've never actually seen a Counterspell used. Um, really? Maybe that's just the games that I'm playing in. 
I, I feel like my players cast counterspell against my wizards all the time, and it drives me crazy because I'm just yeah, like, you know what you can do? My... Yes. Give give the uh, like your high level, you're like 15, 16. The players have kicked in the door. They're here to fight the big bad. The big bad is they're gonna like big bad's gonna fight them solo, but he's got like six fifth level spellcasters hiding in the wings doing nothing but counterspell yeah and then 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 you get into the old ar- whole argument can you counterspell 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 yes, you can. Like, oh god i hate it <laughs> I, I, I i hate it um but no one of the solutions that they that it seems like they're gravitating towards with fifth edition uh uh in the multiverse uh thing that they, the morton kynan's guide to the multiverse mm-hmm. uh is they're they're changing the way that they do spellcasters to where it's spell like abilities so they can't be countered anymore yeah which uh, i uh, did is I that did a side effect or is that intentional that's intentional it's, it's kind of intentional like it's intentional because they don't want dms to have to look at the spellcaster stat blocks and say okay how do i play this optimally because it's almost never clear yeah I and mean, that's exactly what i understood too that the whole idea was to make it easier for dms to run the spellcasters i would actually hope maybe in a five in a five five or a six we would get the clarification that like um as, you know because i think it, the language is something like as a spell you do this or something like this that ultimately yeah. they clarify counterspell still works on any spell casting feature because the idea that all of a sudden you couldn't counterspell them I and that feels yeah. yeah well the thing is like they still have spells like they still mm-hmm. they just have smaller list of spells but then they like for instance the vecna dossier that they released he has some spells but he also has spell like abilities which can't be counterspelled and depending on the creature that feels kind of right to me like i feel like you shouldn't just be able to counterspell vecna for some <laughs> of his stuff because yeah, or, or yeah. start like a turtles all the way down counterspell it's like how many yeah. spell slots do you have because i have a lot <laughs> Um, I do, I want to give a, a quick clarification. So we, we started talking about Vancean and non-Vancean magic, and we've kind of started to delve into these different pieces. So at, at least in 5e and PF2, let's run through and talk about what casters are Vancean, what casters are not, and then talk about kind of the range of those casters. Sound good? Sound good. Okay, awesome. So in 5e, we talked about it's almost Vancean, because uh, technically you prepare the spell, then you can put it in any slot you want. Uh, our Vancean casters are wizards, clerics, Druids and Paladins. Yep, that sounds about right. Our non-Vancian Sorcerer, Bard, Warlock, Ranger. Yeah, so the easy way you distinguish those is, does the class learn spells permanently, or does it prepare them from a list? So wizards have their own weird special list because of the spell book, but otherwise it's just every spell available to you. Um, I... I think we skipped Arcane Tricksters and Eldritch Knights. They count as non-Vancian because they learn the spells. Uh, but yeah, it, it hits the difference between the two. No, perfect. Uh, and then PF2, I, I only went through the core rulebook here, but Vancian, Wizard, Cleric, Druid again. Non-Vancian, Sorcerer, and Bard. Uh, in PF2, they use this, this phrase, uh, spell repertoire, which is essentially, yeah, your, your known spells. You always know them. You don't have to prepare them. It also... The, the main difference between Vancean spellcasters and Pathfinder 2 spellcasters is it feels like uh, Vancean spellcasters in 5e uh, are just way more powerful because uh, they have a lot of more flexibility because uh, aside from wizards, they get access to their entire spell list and they can just memorize certain ones. Whereas, again, with Pathfinder 2, you have to prepare 
those spells for each slot. Um, so you, it, it, it's kind of like with the Vancey and non-Vancey, you're sacrificing spell versatility. Uh, you're sacrificing flexibility in how you cast spells for spell versatility. Um, whereas non-Vancey, you get that that spell flexibility in how you cast them, but you get less spells, which I feel like feels more balanced to me than in 5th edition. I wouldn't say that it's a great system. It still kind of sucks to like have to prepare specific spells and specific spells for specific spell levels. That feels bad. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah. You really got to commit. And I guess that's a question I'll ask both of you. Do you feel like the average player you know, playing a wizard in PF2 or playing a wizard in 5e is really taking the time to think through what spells do I want to prepare for today? Or is it one of these where it's like, I just have my standard list and occasionally like I goof up and everybody just accepts it? Honestly, it's it's probably more of the latter. Like people will generally have their staple go-to spells that work really well for them in their party. And honestly, sometimes that's still the best option. Like your, your average needs day-to-day aren't going to change that much sometimes you will have knowledge ahead of time. You'll be like, oh, we're about to go into a haunted house full of ghosts that like to possess people. I'm going to prepare protection from evil and good today because that solves possession. Otherwise, I wouldn't bring it. Like, So just fiddling around the edges, but generally sticking with your favorites is still a good strategy. Yeah, and that's one of the pros that I would say the Pathfinder system has over 5e. Like, as... As maybe sucky as it is to like have to prepare specific spells for specific spell slots, once you get used to that, I change my spells that I have prepared for the day pretty pretty often as uh, as a witch in Pathfinder One. Where in Five E, I rarely have ever changed my prepared spells; like they were pretty much always the same. Um, so that is a positive that Pathfinder has over Five E. So something this has me thinking as a GM for either system, if you have a prepared spellcaster, maybe providing an opportunity in the quest, at least when you get to uh, more significant enemies, I was about to say larger, but size doesn't matter here, right? The more significant (laughs) enemies, giving an opportunity to do a little bit of research, a little bit of discovery. Uh, Maybe there's different people where it's like, hey, these three people have already encountered the monster. It's up to the player characters if they want to go talk to those three people but maybe each of them have a fact they can offer to let them know it's like, oh, they petrified my partner, or, you know, I find myself completely unable to move as it attacked my friend. Those are things that maybe the prepared spellcasters can look at and say, okay, I do want to bring these things in. Um, Again, you know, let's say you have like a, uh, um, I'm losing my mind. What's one of the stone shaping spells? Stone shape? That's a good name for it. I really like yeah. that. <laughs> um, but yeah, imagine it's like, you know, I, I, I encountered a wall that seemed like it shouldn't have been there and we were unable to proceed forward. So instead we had to go around where we faced the beast. You know, if you talk to the right person, maybe just knowing that I should prepare that spell would be enough to like, hey, cool. I listened, I learned, I prepared it, and now I have an advantage. That's a really rewarding thing for the party um, and it, at that point, it wouldn't be just for the wizard because, you know, we're going to be meta. One of the players might be who isn't playing the wizard might be the one who picks up. It's like, hey, you should totally prepare this because it sounds like if we have stone shape ready to go, something good's going to happen. That's good sure. advice. Well, let's talk about let's talk about something a little different. So we've talked about uh, spell slots quite a bit, and we've talked about this on the variant rules episode previously. But the idea of 
points instead of spell slots. So this is a variant rule presented in the, the Dungeon Master's Guide for 5th Edition. It essentially gives you like a, a mana pool, for being honest. Um, so you can use this mana pool to effectively create spell slots when you cast the spells, which gives you a bit more flexibility in how you want to allocate your resources. So like if you're leaning really heavily on your first level spell slots one day, that's fine. Like th- those are inexpensive. You've got a ton of spells. Sl- you've got a ton of spell points to invest in those spells. If you need more of your higher level spells, you might be able to get more slots than usual, but like it's going to eat a lot of resources. And meanwhile, the sorcerer in 5e is just sitting there like, am I a joke to you? <laughs> what do you mean I have two pools of magic points? Yeah, It's like, I could already convert slots to other slots. What do I need this ability to convert slots to other <laughs> slots? Is the math right? Can I get infinite slots? There's an exchange cost. I'm losing money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, speaking of specific classes, I suppose we should talk about how warlocks are just completely different. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's really interesting because, like, if we look at all the other casters, you could almost just say there is a spectrum, and the spectrum is warlock to wizard. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'd call that a spectrum, but maybe I don't know. So we have the like the Vancian classes, wizard, cleric, druid. We have the the less Vancian classes, sorcerer, etc. And then warlock is like warlock is warlock. It's off doing its own thing. Yeah, Warlock is kind of like how Pathfinder Pathfinder 1 approached magic, which is uh, it's based on your level. Whatever spell you cast is based on your level. Um, and it's always cast kind of its highest power, essentially. Um, so the spell slots are essentially meaningless. <laughs> um, it's just levels of spells that you can, that you can cast. Um, and yeah, it's just a, it's a weird sort of in between own its own sort of system thing. Well, so let, let's be very explicit about what we're describing. So for a warlock, uh, you have a level. Based on your warlock level, you have a max spell level. You will have uh, in slots, and, and I think it's basically two slots at that level, right? It's, it's two, one to three. Uh, you start with one, you get two at level two, and then you get three at level 11. Okay, and then that's it. You have three at your highest spellcasting level mm-hmm. from there on out. Uh, and so, as Ash was saying, you're always casting everything at the highest level. The biggest benefit, and the reason I, I, I called it a spectrum, is like, with a wizard, I have all of these spells available, but I have to limit it to what I prepare. Um, and then I have all of these spell slots available, so I can still cast lots of spells. I can have a lot of fun. With Warlock, it's like, well, you have your bag of cantrips, you have your Eldritch Blast, uh, and you have you know, two or three spells at your highest level at a typical game. But when we think about the resources of the spell slots, the fact that they recharge on a short rest changes how you think about resource management and pacing in a much bigger way than how a sorcerer thinks. Because a sorcerer is right. Well, I can cash in this higher level slot. I can build myself some lower slots. Uh, Vice versa on a bonus action, I can turn in some of these lower slots into a higher level slot. So I've got some currency to move things around depending on how the day is going. Um, and, and I can use that plus my sorcery points to really stretch the day out versus a warlock is like, nah, I need a 15 minute power nap right now, or we're all going to die. Yeah. And then wizards, you, you have arcane recovery, so you can get back like a, a slot or two realistically, but it's mostly just, uh, I have this number of things 
That is all I'm going to get today, and I need to be very responsible about how I use them. In previous editions, this created what was frequently called the five-minute adventuring day, where you would explore, 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 get to a fight. The wizard would immediately cast all of their biggest spells and then say, all right, guys, I'm done for the day. Let's go home. (laughs) I'm feeling very sleepy. Yeah. Yeah, that happened to me the first game I ever ran. My wizard acted like that. They're like, okay, I'm done. I'm, gonna, uh, I'm done. I'm, I don't want to talk to the NPC. I'm going to sleep. Bye. <laughs> Which, so I know 5e has the rule one long rest per day. And I think a lot of people forget that. Folks at home, especially GMs at home who get annoyed by this, one long rest per day. Enforce it. Yeah. Did previous editions not have that rule? I honestly don't remember. Or, or okay, let me, <laughs> let me, I'm, I'm assuming that the recovery mechanic for your resources as a wizard was long rest, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So people were cheating, maybe? (laughs) It wasn't so much that they were cheating. It was just like, okay, we have a 24-hour time span. Five minutes of that is going to be spent actually doing adventuring. And then we're going to go home to somewhere safe and rest. And if need be, the wizards could just teleport the party to safety and teleport them right back to where they were in the morning. Yeah, I'll always make sure I have one resource to get us out of here available. Like, it's Diablo. I just need one scroll of town portal at all times. Yep, that's how it goes sometimes. Yeah. So okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hit on 4e real quick. Um and I'm not gonna bash on 4e too much this time. So uh <laughs> I was reminded um 4e actually was the first place we saw 5e's ritual system. The wizard had the ability to cast certain spells as rituals. Like it was a class feature, if I remember right. I think it may have been exclusive to Wizard, but I don't know if that changed in later books. But 4th edition introduced the concept of encounter powers and daily powers. Like, anything you would do in combat was a power, quote-unquote. You would have your at-wills, your encounter powers, and your daily powers, and they would recharge based based on how they were named. At-will powers, you could use them as much as you want. Encounter powers recharged soon as you were done fighting. Daily powers required a full night's sleep. So... Your big, flashy, exciting powers like Fireball, daily. Your, your like, impactful, powerful, you shouldn't be allowed to spam them things were encounter powers, and then your at-will powers were, like, cantrips, effectively. So, like, fighters would have one where you hit someone, and then you bash them with their shield and force them to move five feet. Like, that was one of the at-will powers for the fighter. And everybody used this system, so everyone was incentivized to rest the same way. If you were at, like, you needed to take a rest after encounters, I think, to get back your encounter power. So everybody said, okay, we're all going to sit down and get our encounter powers back. Everybody needed a full night's sleep to get back the daily power. So everybody was like, yes, we need to rest now because we've all used our daily powers. Okay, so I want to ask the question, having never played this, I can imagine the optimal is, I, everybody burn your encounter powers at the beginning of the encounter. When you are done burning your encounter powers, if they aren't all dead, burn your daily and we'll take a nap. Have I scripted combat for 4 Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's a little more nuance to it because you might not have an encounter power that applies at any given situation. Or maybe your daily power just solves the problem very nicely. But yeah, generally, you would go through your encounter powers primarily and then use your at-will powers to fill in gaps. But that's... 
that's probably where we got the design for warlocks in fifth edition it was very much that concept of encounter powers like the battlemaster fighter all of your maneuvers and stuff that's very much taken from both toma battle and 3x and fourth edition fighters were like here's my my named list of attacks that i can do i can shout them during combat if i'd like uh and then i'm gonna take a short rest every once in a while to get them all back yeah i shout them like a pokemon yeah exactly or like a lot of animes <laughs> sweeping strike yeah pretty much uh <laughs> my fighter is going to use pikachu <laughs> i don't think that's in the core rules it's probably not it'd probably be a ranger if anything right yeah that feels right it would also disappoint me <laughs> so i i think what's really interesting to me and i think we're okay uh we're gonna be meta we've done an episode on pacing got in our back pocket we're gonna get it out there one day mm-hmm. um but this is a really interesting pacing conversation to me because it, let's say I have a party and it's like, oops all, oops, all casters. And I've got a wizard and a sorcerer and a warlock. Depending on how I run my pacing, my combat, if I allow my party to take long rest, like that whole idea of like, okay, we cleared one room, let's go back town and we'll come back and we'll clear the next room tomorrow. Each of my casters are going to have very different experiences because of their resource pool and how they are each going to manage their resource management. Uh, so I think it'd be really interesting. Like, let's look at some other games and talk about how they handle their resource pools and what the limitations are on ideas of magic. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Comparing to other games is always a a great inspiration, a great way to understand more about how games work. Yeah, so I'm going to hit on two Star Wars RPGs because I'm feeling crazy today. Uh, So we're going to start with D20 Star Wars. So this was the first Star Wars RPG published by Wizards of the Coast, not the West End Games one. Um. And in Star Wars, magic is the Force. Any any magic or magic adjacent thing is using the Force. So when you went to use Force powers, like you could learn them effectively with skills, feats, things like that. Um, and to use a Force power, you would spend Vitality, which is effectively hit points. But in D20 Star Wars, you had two pools of hit points. So you had your regular, your vitality points, which is like your regular hit points, and then you had your wounds. Wounds is like, I am actually physically injured in a way that matters, whereas vitality is like, I'm getting a little worn out, guys. So effectively, you made yourself tired to use the force. And when you first started playing the game for a while, you would think, okay, I don't want to use the force because I've only got like... 20 30 hit points at this level and like i don't want to spend five or ten hit points to use the force and then eventually you realized vitality points don't really matter that much because i'm only going to be seriously hurt if someone hits me with a critical hit so you have this huge pad of vitality hit points and this itty bitty pool of wound points so like as long as you didn't get hit with a critical hit you're probably fine so yeah just spend the vitality use the force uh, now, Fantasy Flight Star Wars, it's a little softer. Like, the the resource management isn't eating your character effectively. So we've talked about this on the Metacurrency episode, where you have force points that'll flip between light and dark as the game is played. It's so like, during the session, or beginning of the session, you will roll how many force points there are available of what, what type. Players can use the light side, and the GM can use the dark side to 
hurt the players effectively. And using the force requires you to spend some number of force points and then like you roll the force dice and do some other stuff. So if you choose to use the force, you're not only gambling on whether or not you succeed, you're also giving the GM a meta currency to use against you later. So like there's a clear well, I shouldn't say clear. There is some cost to using the force that makes it so that you don't just want to go to that as the solution all the time. Yeah, I, I feel like we talked about this in the past. That like one strategy is actually let's just lock up everything that the GM spins, so the party is holding the force <laughs> hostage, and then if nobody spins it, nothing bad can happen, right? Uh, which is, you know, it's a bit metagamey. It's probably not as fun as it could be. You know, uh, yeah. How do you strategically push to go back and forth? I the the idea of like my HP being tied or, or my health in general being tied to my casting. I think is interesting. And I wonder if you could do something like that in a 5e or PF2. I feel like the idea of trading back and forth the magic pool, like there's only so many sorcerer points and I'm basically giving them back to GM. I feel like that's, yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if we can make that work though. Maybe not in 5e, but sometime I'll make you guys play Star Wars with me. I like Star Wars. I I would love that, yeah. (laughs) Cool. Well, as long as we're on the topic of magic that has a cost in terms of like, you know, your health or well-being or whatever, uh, there are three systems that I want to briefly mention that are kind of similar to each other. And that is Vampire, uh, Call of Cthulhu, Vampire the Masquerade, excuse me, Call of Cthulhu, and uh, Simbaroom, which is like a hack of 5th edition, but kind of has its own magic system separate from 5th edition. So this so, is Ruins of Simbaroom? Ruins of Simbaroom, yeah. Okay. Which is the um, final board from Free League of Simbaroom, which is its own standalone role-playing yeah, game. Yeah, which is its own thing, and I don't want to get into Simbaroom Classic right now. I'm just going <laughs> to use the 5th edition version because it's easier for people to understand. But... Um, uh, it's essentially kind of like magic is a corrupting force. Um, and it's kind of random as to whether your pool, so to speak, goes down. Um, so every time you cast a spell on any of these or use a power in any of these systems, it has a chance to negatively affect you or has a chance to reduce your pool. So starting with Vampire. With Vampire, whenever you use a discipline, which is what, vampires names for spells or powers are uh you have to roll what is called a rouse check and it's basically to see if you succeed on a on a hunger check essentially uh because you're rousing the blood and if you fail it you start getting more hungry like you add a dot to your hunger track which getting more and more hungry can be really bad because it makes certain checks more risky because you can do what's called a messy critical, or you can have a bestial failure because you're ro- it adds hunger dice to your pool. Um, and so when you have like a messy critical, like if you roll a critical success on a hunger die, you succeed, but you succeed in a way that's kind of bad. Uh, like you could rip a guy's arm off when you're fighting him unintentionally, which could break the masquerade. Um, and then bestial failures, you don't want bestial failures. They're like even worse than crit fails. Um, and so having that hunger, especially if you get to the max, then you start to frenzy, you lose control of your character briefly. So you want to keep your hunger in check. So you can conceivably cast as many spells as you want and just hope that you succeed most of the time, which if you're lucky, you will. Um, so it's kind of like a risk reward type of thing. I, 
I want to say, um, and I hate to admit this this far, you know, in, into the podcast as a whole, I actually don't know anything about Vampire the Masquerade. I've always heard it's really cool, and I'm really interested in it. Having heard the sentence, you might accidentally rip the guy's arm off and ruin the masquerade, only makes me want to play it that much more. It is an awesome system, and not a lot of people not, not a lot of people play it, but it's a really <laughs> cool system. It has a lot of depth to it. It's more of like, it's less of a combat-focused RPG and more of like a social encounter RPG. Yeah. I actually learned something super cool recently. So the the five top played RPGs on Roll Twenty in order: D and D, Pathfinder Second Edition, Call of Cthulhu, Vampire the Masquerade. Oh, I can't remember the fifth one. <laughs> I didn't. That's that's it, interesting. It's still very popular. Like it, it was huge in the '90s, and then got kind of quiet for a little while. But like. Uh, White Wolf brought it back in the past few years, so a lot of people are picking it up. I've heard really good things. I haven't got a chance to play it either. Let's uh, let's add it to the pile of games that we'll all play together sometime. Yes, well, let's move we it can up talk the stack it. further. Yeah, yeah, and, we, and, then we, and then we can talk about it because it's a really cool system with a lot of depth and complexity to it. Like their fifth edition vampire has a lot of um, controversy surrounding it that I don't want to get into. But since White Wolf was dissolved and uh, the new uh, people who took over it have taken have have been adding to it, it's gotten a lot better. But uh, anyway, we can talk about vampires some other time. Um, <laughs> so uh, the next one is Call of Cthulhu. Now, Call of Cthulhu is an interesting case because it magic is rare. In Call of Cthulhu, especially for investigators, because investigators, if you're playing with magic, you probably have a death wish um, because it can backfire really easily and it can even kill you if you're not careful or drive you completely insane. And there are magic points, but you have a limited number of them. And once they're gone, they're gone forever. Uh, <clears throat> it's not like a thing that recharges. They're just gone. And it's a system where you're meant to be overpowered by the world, right? So the idea that you would have a consistent restoring pool of magic just doesn't fit. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't fit. And like you have to be really foolhardy to be an investigator who casts magic. And even then, you're not really like casting spells like you would think about it in fifth edition. It's more like you're learning rituals, learning ritual magics, trying to commune with dark spirits and stuff like that. So you have to like roll against your magic stat, you reduce your magic points, and you could possibly have some blowback depending on, you know, if you don't succeed at the check. And you could go insane, you could die. It's it's a whole thing. So magic in Call of Cthulhu is highly discouraged, especially for investigators. But if you want to do it, it is there. It's just not recommended. I'm going to tell you right now, that makes me want to do it even more. I know, right? <laughs> it's like a forbidden thing. But like, so the thing about about the magic in Call of Cthulhu is like, in order to learn it, you first have to learn the mythos. Like, you have to go, uh, you have okay. to read dark tomes. You have to learn mythos, and that increase every time you read a dark tome, your mythos skill score goes up. But every time it goes up, your max insanity goes down. Oh, your max sanity goes down. So the more you read about it, the more insane you get. So if you want to cast like really powerful spells, you're basically almost to the level where you're completely stark raving mad. So it is a very risky system. But if you somehow push through it and survive, you can come up, you can pull off some really cool stuff. It's like knowing whether somebody's been working on the trains a long time by counting how many fingers they have left. 
Yes. Yes. It's kind of like Jeez. that. Jeez. Like, no, that was a real thing. Like, oh, yeah, you've been, you've been in the train yard for a long time. Two on each hand. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a dark system. You're supposed to, Call of Cthulhu is a system where you're not, is not a power fantasy. It is not something where you're supposed to feel powerful and cool. It is something where you're supposed to be, feel helpless in the unknown. Um, Terrifying. The last one that I want to talk about is Simbarome. Uh, Ruins of Simbaroom, which uh, I talked about in the review, but if you haven't listened to that, uh, it's a, it's like a corruption system. So you can cast as many spells as you want, as many spells as you want, baby. There's no limit. Uh, but the only, uh, the, like, you don't have any spell slots, spell points, none of that. The only thing is, every time you cast a spell, your corruption goes up by a random amount. Um, and once you reach certain thresholds, you get permanent corruption which is almost impossible to get rid of. So if you want to cast a ton of spells and just be like, screw the consequences, I don't really care, you can, you can conceivably cast like way more spells in a day than even a wizard could at max level. Uh, in fact, in my playtest, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> um, but it's balanced in such a way that those, those players paid for it heavily. They heavily paid for it because corruption, like it got to a point where the corruption was out of control. And corruption not only has like negative drawbacks, it makes certain saves against different monsters more difficult. So, for instance, Colby's character summoned a CR8 demon servant that could just follow, him or follow them around and, uh, and not have to worry about it. But their, their flat DC check for their corruption saves was a DC 20. And that was for... Any sort of there were these creatures that were trying to possess them, and the DC to avoid being possessed was at minimum a twenty, and they could go up because they're temporary. It's based on the temporary corruption and permanent corruption that they have. So the more spells they cast, the harder it becomes to resist being possessed. So it can spiral very quickly, which is a cool system. It's like a very high risk, high reward kind of system. I think the unfortunate thing with like both Simbarum and Call of Cthulhu is that. If you know you're playing a one-shot, mm-hmm. the disincentive to not abuse this isn't there. Yeah. Which, as long as everybody's there for that ride, that could be a lot of fun. And, and again, like, that's exactly what happened in the one-shot that I ran for Simbaroom, but it never felt like the, was, uh, like the, my players were breaking the game. Because, again, things just got harder for them. Like, infinitely harder. Um, so it felt like it was balanced and balanced specifically for that. It's like, okay, so you don't care if your character lives or dies. That's cool. Your character's probably going to die because it's, <laughs> you've basically blown through the whole thing. So cool. <laughs> Drive it like you stole it, man. Yeah. <laughs> so let's hit, uh, let's hit Mark Borg real quick since we've talked about Mark Borg a lot on the show. Uh, it has similarly risky powers. Like there isn't that corruption system like there is in Ruins of Simbarum or, or any of the other games we've hit on with similar systems because your characters generally don't live long enough for corruption to matter. <laughs> yeah, and so at the beginning of the day, uh, you roll your pleasant, ugh, you roll your presence plus a d4 and that's how many, you know, basically call it a spell slot. That's how many powers you get for the day. That's your count. You carry scrolls with you. So the limiting factor of known spells is how many scrolls are you carrying with you? Now, here's the deal. When you read a scroll, um, you get a, we would call it DC 12 presence check. If you fail it, uh, 
you lose health, you're dizzy, and you cannot use powers for the next hour. So if you're somebody primarily relying on spellcasting, a failed spellcasting not only means that this power didn't work, it means you can't do it for the next hour. Um, if you do, you automatically fumble. Um, there's a definition of a fumble. It's basically like a super fail. If you try to cast a spell anyway when you're not supposed to be, so let's say you just forget and you do it, you automatically fumble and terrible things happen. I'll give an example. Uh, you and a random nearby creature pass out. When you wake up, your souls have switched. Welcome to your new flesh. Ah. <laughs> uh. Oh, that sounds awful. (laughs) Uh, uh, Another good one. So the whole game is built around this idea of miseries, and basically you're charging towards the end of the world. You failing to use a power and having a fumble can literally advance the end of the world. A new misery will happen. I had forgotten that. Wow, you can literally end the world if you roll badly. Yeah. Wait, It'll be your fault. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right. We have a question of the week this week. Our question of the week this week comes to us from at Edusecon on Twitter. How do we balance non damage cantrips? So, first, we should probably talk about what are cantrips, and maybe we'll come back and we'll answer this question. Yeah. So, I, I sat on this question for a while, specifically until we could do this episode, because it fits so nicely with spell resource management. So cantrips in 5th edition, Pathfinder 2nd edition, and I'm sure there are other systems that have a similar concept. It's minor spells that do some simple bit of magic that you can do as many times as you want. Now, in pre-4th edition versions of D&D, Pathfinder 1st edition, cantrips actually used slots. So like... I could prepare Ray of Frost. It would do 1d3 damage if I hit with an attack roll. It never got better, and I could only do it a couple of times a a day. So generally, past like level 1 or 2, your cantrips were purely utility. In 4th and 5th edition, cantrips are now usable at will, so there's some more balance concerns. So, like... Firebolt in 5th edition. D10 damage goes up by a D10 every time in increments. So that's like your your go-to reliable, I'm a wizard, all I need is damage. And that's actually kind of like a center balance point for a lot of the damage cantrips in the game. And you can say like, okay, I'm going to do less damage but get some other thing. Or I'm going to do more damage and have a limitation, like a worse damage type, shorter range, things like that. Another typical thing is that with a cantrip, you're not going to get half damage on, uh, you know, a successful saving throw Um, versus a lot of your spells. If you're burning a spell slot, typically you're at least going to get half damage. I'm a little bit confused by the question. How do we balance non-damage cantrips? Uh, Do people think non-damage cantrips in 5e are bad because they're great? They're really good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they are very good. So I I think the question is more, how do you make a non-damage cantrip that is balanced in the game? So let's say we want to create Ah. a new cantrip to put in the game, and we're worried that it's going to cause problems. Like uh, Tome of Heroes from Cobalt Press came out very recently and only had like two cantrips in it. And they were super niche. Like one of them was Heal Plant. And it's it's literally you heal a non-magical plant and very useful utility for a non-adventuring person. But for like a here, an adventuring 
can't see a hero because not necessarily an adventurer. The ability to heal non-magical trees, not always useful. I feel like that is a good question. And I feel like it is really hard to come up with a non-damaging cantrip that isn't super niche um, that's balanced. Because the the thing about cantrips is that it has to be good, but not amazing that you only use it. Which is why True Strike is in a <laughs> bad place in 5th edition. Because True Strike was really good in 3.5. Um, almost brokenly so. Uh, and so some of the suggestions that people have said, well, we'll make True Strike a bonus bonus action. But then it becomes way too good. <laughs> it becomes yeah. way too good. <laughs> uh, like, especially if, if you do make True Strike a bonus action, literally, there would be no reason for rogues not to take Magic Initiate. <laughs> like they would always take magic initiate so yep. they could always guarantee that they have advantage on a on a thing. Um so I don't I don't know if there's a good answer to that question, to be honest. And I think the other side of the coin, like what's available to us in 5e, we have rituals. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not in a combat situation, I'm trying to do something that doesn't deal damage directly. Would you ever want you know, is there a trade-off between rituals and cantrips? Would you always say outside of combat, that doesn't need to be a cantrip, just make it a ritual, take 10 minutes and cast it. You know, so I almost feel like we should maybe limit this conversation to non-damage cantrips that are still useful in combat. Okay, so this is really fun. You guys have hit on, you've accidentally hit on two really cool data points. So detect magic. In 5th edition, it's a first level spell, right? You can cast it as a ritual. So, you know, level one character that can cast rituals has access to detect magic whenever they need it. In 3X, detect magic was a cantrip. Right. And the question is, why did they make it a leveled spell instead of keeping it as a cantrip? And the answer is, it's really annoying. Like, that, that is literally the answer. In playtesting, Detect Magic in 5th edition was a cantrip, and it got so annoying for dungeon masters, like, Combat is over, the wizard immediately casts Detect Magic, and that is all the wizard does between, in, in between combat, is walk around detecting magic at everything in the game. And wizards decided, first, super annoying for the DM to always have to answer that question, and second, it makes it basically impossible to hide anything magical. If you make it a ritual, it, it at least has that casting time cost. So you can be like, okay, if you want to sit down for an hour to cast Detect Magic, or 10 minutes i'm forgetting the actual time right now sure you can do it you might have some wandering monsters to deal with well that's an interesting point because uh i mean i in, in the pathfinder game that i'm playing right now i have detect magic and it doesn't feel doesn't feel that that like overpowered it doesn't feel like i'm casting all the time and the the thing about about pathfinder's detect magic is it just tells you that there is magic it doesn't tell you what it is or how it works. It just tells you, hey, this is a magic thing. If you want to try to identify that magic thing first, you have to roll an arcana check to figure out what spell school it's at. Second, you then have to roll a spell crafting check based on the DC is like equal to the spell level. So some spells are probably going to be beyond you um, it, to identify exactly what kind of spell it is. Um, and you only get the check once. If you fail, sorry, you don't get it. 
you just know that's a magic thing and that's happened to me a lot which is why i don't use detect magic like uh like in every single in uh situation but i i don't know it feels like a cop out to me to be like and this is annoying it's like <laughs> i mean then make it not annoying i i totally buy it though i, I guess i want to get a point of clarity just make sure my head's in the right place 5e detect magic um you'll know if there's like a magic item or a magic aura and you'll also know what type of magic it is. Is it evocation? Is it you do right. have to, you do have to like stare at the space for some, like a couple rounds. Basically, first round you'll say there is magic in this cone that I'm looking at. Second round you'll see which square it's in. Third round you'll get more details about it. It's so like you, as soon as you notice magic, you can stop for 18 seconds and be like, "Hmm, neat. I know all the things." But yeah, it's a it's a nightmare for DMs. Well, and, and I can 100% imagine, like, there is no narrative magic or magic item happening right now. But then getting in a situation where it's like, you know, I cast detect magic in, in the court, and the king and the queen are sitting there, and their wizards are hovering in the background, and there's all these courtesans, like, hovering around. And it's like, no, there, there's nothing magical. You mean to tell me, in this court, full of all of these wealthy people, there's not a single magic ring on anybody's finger? And I was like, no, I don't mean to tell you that, but I'm... I, I don't care as a DM. I just don't care. <laughs> yeah. Like I can imagine that being very specifically for detect magic, a really difficult, like a hundred percent. That makes sense to me. And, and I have players that I have played with who a hundred percent, every new room detect magic. Yeah. I guess it kind of depends because again, like in games I've played in games, I've run detect magic is used very rarely. And at times it does, I'm not like, ah, oh, you foiled my plan. Because I'm trying to think of when a detect magic, what, like if someone had dropped a detect magic, when it would have kind of screwed me. The only thing I can probably think of is with a disguise spell. Hmm. But like even that, you can the way you can describe it, you can kind of throw people players off. So you could say, oh, it's illusion magic, but you know, that could be anything. Like it could be like, you know, the nobles wear illusions of clothes all the time to make it look a little bit nicer and stuff like that. So you, there are ways to, to hide it without, like, you know, messing up your whole plan. Uh, I, the other thing that I can think of is maybe traps. That's, that's kind of it. Like, it. It doesn't feel, to me at least, in the games that I, I'm... I can only speak to my experience. Detect Magic doesn't seem like that annoying of a spell to me. But I can only speak to my experience. Well, and but let's let's maybe open it up to what Tyler was getting at. Are there non-damage, are there potentially non-damage cantrips that you wouldn't rather just say make it a ritual, make it cost ten minutes to cast, and make it first level if for some reason you just need to do it in combat? I'd say I, I can't think of any currently published cantrips that I would make a that i would make into a leveled spell that you could cast as a ritual like these are things like guidance mage hand prestidigitation uh so the these spells have like they have a short-lived short-range simple effect that you can usually provide by some other means so like mage hand you can just go pick stuff up prestidigitation can do a couple of things like it can make food warm you know what else can make food warm me uh fireball <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> yes uh it can make a a small crude object appear in your hand which you could do by like sculpting clay so like 
generally cantrips can be solved by other problems. Uh, light, you can light a torch. Dancing lights, you can put a candle on a fishing pole. Like, you can solve these problems other ways, but cantrips let you provide that function magically, maybe in a slightly better way than you could as a person. Like, I can use Mage Hand and levitate a small object up into the air. That's kind of hard for me to do as a person because I can't fly. Yeah, so I think just based on what you brought up, Tyler, I'm in my head, I'm really landing on the line probably is, uh, and I hate to do this because it's very meta, <laughs> if you spamming the cantrip would make the DM or GM have to make up a ton of content on the spot in order to keep the world consistent, it probably can't be a cantrip. If making the cantrip spammable makes the player tell a long story on the spot, go right ahead because hopefully the other players will, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, use the social fix right, <laughs> to get you to stop doing that. It's like, it's like, well, as we're walking through, like, I use a mage hand to lift the hat off of everybody that we walk by. And it's like, okay, now the DM says you're getting into combat because you're messing with people's hats. <laughs> like, that's going to solve the problem on its own versus, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and some uh, cantrips should be limited enough to where players have to come up crea- with creative su- solutions to make them more useful than they are. Like, one of the most creative uses of a cantrip I saw was actually in the first game, first session I ever ran. Uh, a friend of mine was saw that there was a high ledge uh, above a river. They said, I have shape water. Can I form these step-by-step step into a step for us to get up? It's like, that's so cool. Uh, I don't know if you can do that, but sure, let's do it. That sounds awesome. The, the answer yeah. is yes. With yeah. shape water, yes. It it's is so cool. extremely appeasable. Oh, yeah. No, it's very good. It's a very good cantrip. Yeah. Uh, oh man, Minor Illusion is one of my favorites in 5e. You oh, can create yeah. an illusion that fits into a five-foot cube, which is stupidly large. <laughs> a lot of things. Yeah, uh, or you can make an audible sound uh-huh. as well to make it a distraction or something. <laughs> my favorite thing in Randall's game, so you can have multiple of the illusions going at a time, so I would make an illusory chicken appear in a room and then to draw creatures to the chicken, I would make it make the sound of me saying bok bok. Not not actually like chicken noises. That would be too obvious. Just the chicken would say bok bok. Yeah. The, the very dumb hungry creatures would be like, oh, a chicken meal. That's, um, a, that, that's amazing. I mean, and, and Minor Illusion only gets better if you play an Illusion Wizard. Illusion really Wizards are so much fun. <laughs> if you haven't played an Illusion Wizard, play an Illusion Wizard. But you need a good DM yeah. who's willing to let you get away with stuff. But man, <laughs> is it fun. Yeah, I didn't just let him get away with it. I brought in an animated GIF of a chicken dancing. <laughs> I loved that so much. Yeah, did you know you can use animated GIFs in Roll20 as tokens? Because you can. I didn't know that. That's amazing. So many. Yeah. So many. <laughs> you should have. Did you play the hamster dance? Because you should have. Uh, it never came up. It would have been really on the nose. Hey, Spelljammer's <laughs> almost out. The time is coming. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think, I think we did it. All hail the Leisure Illuminati. I'm Randall James. You'll find me at AmateurJack.com and on Twitter and Instagram at JackAmateur. I'm Tyler Campstow. You'll find me at RPGBot.net, Facebook and Twitter, RPGBOTDOTNET, and Reddit.com slash R slash RPGBot. Uh, I'm Ash Eli. You can follow me on Twitter at Graven Ashes. And uh, 
Uh, exciting news. I have a account on startplaying.games. So if you guys are looking for someone to run a game for you, hit me up. Awesome. I, I, I might do that. <laughs> if you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You'll find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make the show happen every week. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at RPGBot.net or message us on Twitter at RPGBOTDOTNET. Please also consider supporting our Patreon, where you'll find ad-free podcast episodes, early access to RPGBot.net content, polls for future content, and access to the RPGBot.discord. You'll find us at patreon.com slash RPGBot. The Leisure Illuminati has been secretly removing all of our hails from the episodes. It's a grand conspiracy. I can't say anymore. They're on to me. What? I, I observed this on my car ride today. I was going to ask these questions. Don't ask those kinds of questions. Not on air, at least. To be continued. <laughs> Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.